Warning, sexual violence will be extensively discussed within this podcast. Finding Deviant podcast. Today I am going to pick up where we left off, which is going to be talking about paraphilic disorders. We're going to mostly focus today on the eight common paraphilic disorders that are within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. This is the primary document that we use for the diagnosis of mental disorders. And there are some issues associated with this, and we're going to talk about that later. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to really focus on those eight disorders and then talk a little bit about issues with the DSM. And the next episode, I'm going to pick back up there and talk a lot about what the research says about paraphilic disorders, what that actually means, how we differentiate that from non-paraphilic disorders. To start off in terms of definitions, according to the DSM-5, Paraphilic disorders are when an individual has sexual fantasies, sexual desires, or sexual behavior with objects, people, or situations that are abnormal or considered deviant. Again, this comes back to that idea of what is considered deviant or abnormal. And that's why I brought that up in the first couple episodes, because as we go through the idea of disorders and crimes and those sorts of things, we start to realize that those definitions can vary. What makes something a disorder, according to the DSM, for most disorders, but not all, is that the interests at hand, especially when we're talking about paraphilic disorders, have to cause distress or impairment to that individual, or it has to cause harm or risks causing harm to that individual or others. Essentially, this means that the individual has to be suffering because of these interests or they're at risk of harming themselves or others because of these interests. So to have a paraphilic disorder, the interests that we're talking about have to have lasted for at least six months because the purposes of diagnosing a paraphilic disorder is that it's been kind of a chronic issue and something that needs to be dealt with. If someone, say, has a couple months where they're really into a certain fetish or kind of experimenting sexually, then this wouldn't qualify as a paraphilic disorder because there has to be that endurance of these atypical interests. Although there are many, many sexual interests that we can call a paraphilia, as I mentioned, the DSM-5 outlines eight specific paraphilias that can be associated with paraphilic disorder as well as an other category. This other category can incorporate a lot of different types, and I'm going to talk about some of the examples that come up often in sexual crime. As mentioned, I'm now going to walk through those eight specific paraphilias, and the next episode I will continue that more broad discussion of paraphilias and the issues around diagnosing them in, say, sex therapy settings or sexual crime settings first disorder to talk about is called exhibitionism or exhibitionist disorder. Exhibitionism is defined as essentially deriving sexual pleasure from exposing one's private parts, so this may be genitals or breasts or other areas that are sexualized, to an unsuspecting person 
or performing sexual acts that can be watched by others. The common example that we would think of is someone that sort of flashes somebody, for example, or an imperfect example would be, say, Sharon Stone from Basic Instinct, where she has that scene where she opens her legs and shows her vulva to the officers to be provocative in that scene. I say imperfect example because we don't know if Sharon Stone is getting sexual pleasure from engaging in this behavior. I mean, they certainly seem to suggest it in Basic Instinct. But we also don't see any distress or impairment linked to the behavior, so it's not clear that she would represent an exhibitionist disorder. The second disorder is frauderism, or frauderistic disorder. Frauderistic disorder is defined as deriving sexual pleasure from touching or rubbing against a non-consenting person. Frauderism can be a really difficult disorder to find examples of within film and television, but you may have seen clips of actions such as when there are trains that are really, really packed full of people, when there's not a lot of room, there's a lot of person density in there, um, that there will be individuals, say, caught on camera um, rubbing up against someone uh, with their hands or uh, rubbing their you know, genitals against somebody through their clothing. And they make it seem as if it's perhaps accidental, but the person is engaging that for the purposes of their own sexual pleasure. Third example is voyeuristic disorder or voyeurism. So this is, again, that sexual pleasure, and that's key to the sexual paraphilias if you haven't noticed. So this is sexual pleasure from observing an unsuspecting person who is naked, undressing, or engaging in sexual activities or activities deemed to be of a private nature. This would be, for example, someone that is changing at home, someone that's, say, uh, peeping Tom, it's often called. So they're looking in through the windows at someone who's unsuspecting as they're getting changed. And then we also see examples such as in, there was an example recently in the Okanagan where at a local winery, one of the employees had installed a camera within the washroom that was there. Individuals had unsuspectingly been recorded. That's an example in real life of a case where we saw an individual likely engaging in voyeurism specifically and, and probably had something like voyeuristic disorder. So a documentary to watch in terms of voyeuristic disorder would be The Voyeur, and this can be found on Netflix. It's about an individual that purported to have run a hotel for many decades and used it essentially for the purposes of engaging in voyeurism and had set up cameras around this hotel extensively. It's unclear how often he was actually engaging in this behavior, but it is a really, really interesting watch and it's something that I normally show in my class when I'm talking about this. Fourth paraphilic disorder is fetishistic disorder or fetishism. This is one that people have often heard of when we talk about the paraphilias, but again, when we're talking about the disorder, this is deriving sexual pleasure from specific inanimate objects or non-genital body parts. In film world, we have seen that Quentin Tarantino is often rumored to have a foot fetish, and you can actually see that in many of his films and shows, he has extensive foot-related activity. I think there's at least nine of his films that he involves some sort of foot licking and like people taking their shoes off and all sorts of things. For example, there is foot reference in the movie Inglorious Bastards. 
but you can see other examples in his work. But in that one, he has a scene where the villain captain is in a room with one of the women and he's being super creepy and as part of the scene he sort of like picks her feet up and then slides the shoe off and just sort of engages with her foot and that's a theme that's been seen in Quentin Tarantino's films before. The next topic is a rather big one and I'm gonna define a few things first so that it makes sense and I do this because this is my specific research area and I'm going to be talking a lot about this research in future episodes so I want to kind of set those definitions up now. The next disorder I'm going to focus on is pedophilia but before we talk about that I actually want to define what pedophilia and hebophilia are because that's important to know the difference. I also want to say that obviously this is a very difficult topic for a lot of people to discuss pedophilia, but I do study it and it's an area where I think there's a lot of room for supporting those that have survived these actions, but also creating change around sexual violence by being accurate about the information that we give. People tend to associate pedophilia with individuals who choose children of a certain age. However, research indicates that these ideas of pedophilia and hebophilia are actually attractions to certain stages of sexual development rather than an age. If we think about something called the Tanner stages, this is a pictorial and written description of the development of secondary sex characteristics that occur through childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. If we think about the Tanner stages, there's essentially five stages. And pedophilia is most commonly associated with being attracted to children that are in Tanner stage one or two. These stages are where there is minimal to no development of secondary sex characteristics in boys or girls during these stages. One way to think about it is that in this stage, you would often have body morphology between boys and girls that are similar and that plays a role that we'll talk about later. Pedohebophilia is another term that sort of falls between pedophilia and hebophilia and it's most commonly associated with being attracted to children and adolescents that are in Tanner's stages two and three. This is where you start to begin to see development of secondary sex characteristics, but boys and girls do tend to retain a very childlike appearance. This is different than hebophilia. Hebophilia is most hebophilia is most commonly associated with being attracted to adolescents, and these are typically in Tanner stage three and four. Adolescents in these stages tend to have development of secondary sex characteristics, and they're starting to develop a more mature physique. The reason that I'm distinguishing these is because you can imagine that there's actually quite a big difference between, say, someone who is engaging in child sexual abuse against a child who is prepubescent versus someone who's engaging in sexual violence against a adolescent who is mature figured. And that comes up later when we distinguish between some of the crimes and the motivations between some of the crimes. In taking those definitions and going back to pedophilic disorder, the DSM specifically only has a disorder for pedophilia. So hebophilia is not defined in the DSM right now. 
Pedophilic disorder is defined within the DSM-5 as a sexual preference for prepubescent children. Again, that's those Tanner stages 1 and 2, where there's no secondary sex characteristic development. There's a controversial documentary called Are All Men Pedophiles that I show in my class. And it is a controversial documentary because it argues that hebophilia, which is that sexual attraction to pubescent adolescents, is fairly normal in our society. And it addresses what it thinks of about as hysteria about pedophilia in the current culture. So within this film, they make the argument that there needs to be a distinction between pedophilia and hebophilia, and that hebophilia is more acceptable because it's more common. Again, I want to bring this back to the distinction between the terms of it's important to note that the Tanner stages of sexual development when you're looking at hebophilia would be individuals that are more mature looking. And this is regardless of age. So someone could be 14 and very mature looking, but they could also be 16 and very young looking. Age isn't what we're talking about here. It's that what their body morphology is. When we talk about issues such as hebophilia, it's important to note that prior to 2008, the age of consent was only 14 in Canada and had been since 1892. We did raise the age of consent to 16 in 2008, but it was 14 for a very, very long time, including in Canada. I bring up that film because it makes some clear delineations between pedophilia and hebophilia and also discusses some of the research that I'm going to talk about in future episodes that show the proportions of individuals that have some sort of sexual arousal to adolescents. The next disorder is sexual sadism disorder. I'm not going to get too much into this disorder because it does come up quite a bit when we talk about sexual crime, but when we talk about sexual sadism disorder, that is sexual pleasure from inflicting pain or humiliation on another person. But remember those first criteria that we also talked about, where it has to be distressing and impairing to the person, or it has to be risking real harm to themselves or another person. On the flip side, we have sexual masochism disorder. Sexual masochism disorder is derived as getting that sexual pleasure from wanting to be humiliated, beaten, bound, or essentially to made suffer. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Fifty Shades of Grey series. This was a very popular book series that was made into a film series, the Fifty Shades series, and it purports to focus on a dominant and submissive relationship. However, remember that they are engaging in a consensual relationship and it focuses somewhat on deviant sexuality and was well received. It doesn't necessarily represent what a lot of individuals within the BDSM community do, and there's a lot more that focuses on consent within the BDSM community, and it's important to remember that. It is a film and doesn't necessarily represent the communication and discussions that often go into such relationships and such sexual activities. While discussing sexual masochism, I wanted to give a brief case example. A specific type of sexual masochism is called infibulation. And infibulation is defined as the torture of one's own body for sexual pleasure. A clear example of this among those who've committed sexual crimes would be Albert Fish. Albert Fish was a serial killer in the United States who was involved in the rape, murder, and cannibalizing of several children. In terms of background, it's important to note that as a child, Albert Fish grew up in an orphanage, and he and other children experienced very severe beatings. And Fish stated himself that 
he started to develop sexual arousal when those beatings were occurring when he was growing up. Later on, he started to engage in behaviors to harm himself because of this sexual arousal component, and he started spanking himself with nail-studded paddles. The primary infibulation behavior he's known for is that he actually would insert needles between his scrotum and his anus, so the perineum is that area that it's called, and at the time of his arrest, they gave him an x-ray and they actually saw approximately 30 needles inserted in his lower region. If you Google the x-ray, you can actually see what it looked like, and you can imagine how dangerous of a behavior this is in terms of the internal and the external damage that can be done. But because of this sort of predilection that he had for this masochism, he continued these behaviors all throughout his life. A specific type of behavior that falls into the sadistic and masochistic type of behaviors can be autoeroticism. Autoeroticism essentially is sexual behavior without a partner, so it's any self-based behaviors. I'm going to discuss a few of these types of behaviors, but this is by no means a representation of them all. One that you'll likely have heard of is autoerotic asphyxiation. This involves stopping the flow of oxygen to the brain in some matter, and this is thought to result in heightened sexual pleasure. Individuals who engage in this behavior often use rope as the common method, and they use rope because they can create a fail-safe method within the rope that's set to release once they pass out, and then that restores oxygen to their brain. However, we do see a lot of deaths that result from this behavior, particularly when that release mechanism fails. That tends to be where we see death associated with autoeroticism. This is thought to be the case in what happened to David Carradine, who is a very, very well-known actor from Kill Bill, who died due to suspected autoeroticism. His ex-wives stated after his death that he was involved with self-bondage. It makes sense given the context of his death, that that's likely what happened. And unfortunately, again, it was a result of the failure of those release mechanisms. Research shows that the majority of those who are involved in autoerotic asphyxiation are young, white, middle-class, unmarried men. But in terms of who is engaging in it, that's not necessarily representative, because these are the cases that led to death. So it may be that the, this class of individuals are engaging in a certain type of autoerotic asphyxiation that is particularly dangerous or some sort of thing. So we don't know whether that's representative of other groups. There is another variation of this that's called aquaerotic asphyxiation in which the individual essentially drowns themselves for sexual pleasure. This is much rarer than using other methods such as rope. So I mention it, but it's not something that we see all that often. The principle, however, is the same. So it's that thought that you're causing oxygen deprivation to the brain, and then you have that release slow of oxygen heightening the sexual pleasure. There have been two case studies reported on aquaerotic asphyxiation, the first in 1984 and the second in 2006. The 2006 case, a 25-year-old man was found submerged and tied under a boat. In this case, he had a homemade diving apparatus on, which he was essentially using for rebreathing, and that rebreather had failed. 
After the case had been closed, they did find that the individual who had died had been a member of a group for people practicing autoerotic asphyxiation. So they were able to essentially make this conclusion about it. And it shows the kind of great lengths that some individuals go to, but also the danger in having no safe available options for individuals to engage in such sexual practices. A final method of autoerotic asphyxiation is called chemical asphyxiation. This is when a person uses an inhalant such as gas or a chemical aerosol for sexual pleasure. Principle is the exact same again with that oxygen deprivation, but you will often see individuals using a mask when they engage in this behavior. They might use nitrous oxide, trichloroethane, butane, chloroform, other things. Individuals have used all those sorts of inhalants to heighten their sexual pleasure. Following sadism and masochism, that brings us to the final of the eight, which is transvestic fetishism disorder. Transvestic fetishism disorder is derived, defined as deriving sexual pleasure from wearing clothing associated with members of the opposite sex. To talk about in this section, A.J. McLean from the Backstreet Boys. In 2013, he told interviewers that he enjoys dressing in women's clothing and that he had a specialty dress made for his wedding so that they could do a photo shoot, which is a beautiful photo shoot. So in talking about this example, we don't have enough information to assume a transvestic fetishism disorder, but that's often what someone would assume when someone wears female clothing. But we have no indication that he's deriving any sort of sexual pleasure from it, which is required for it to actually be that transvestic fetishism disorder. There are a number of other motivations that someone may have for dressing as the opposite sex without it necessarily being about sex. It may be that they are simply in gender disguise, so we see this in terms of countries where females may not be allowed in certain areas and they end up dressing differently. We see this for comfort, so pants be often a lot comfier than skirts, for example. We see it for comfort, so some individuals will wear the opposite sex clothing for comfort. Some men like to wear silk panties because of the feeling. Another motivation may be simply self-discovery. We live in a society where men, women, and others can engage in self-discovery and wear and do things that may not necessarily have been acceptable in previous times in an attempt to better understand who they are. Again, this may be as simple as men wearing floral clothing or wearing a dress or wearing panties just to see how it feels and what their experience is in wearing it. Another reason is simply entertainment or things like cosplay. So it's important to remember that transvestic fetishism is not the same thing as, you know, being a drag queen, being transgender, and it's not related to sexual orientation. It is simply someone who's deriving sexual pleasure from wearing clothing associated with the opposite sex. And again, in this case, we're typically talking about men wearing women's clothing. The final sort of section that I told you about was the other paraphilic disorders, and these are where pretty much you can have anything that an individual is sexually attracted to and it can fall under this, but some other common types you may have heard of are zoophilia, so this is involving animals, coprophilia involving feces, 
um, but also necrophilia. So that involves sexual activity with a dead body. And that is something that I'm going to talk about further. Again, a difficult and uncomfortable conversation, but something that we do see come up extensively in sexual crime, unfortunately. If we think about some of the commonly thought of names when it comes to serial killers, these are often individuals that have engaged in necrophilia with their victims to various capacities. This involves killers such as Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, Edmund Kemper, Dennis Nilsson, Edward Keane, and Henry Lee Lucas, and these are just a few examples. All of these men were responsible for the death of their victims. I bring these up to actually make a comparison point. All of these men were responsible for the death of their victims, but there are also cases of necrophilia where the individual will put themselves into a position where they can have access to bodies for sexual purposes. And this might be someone such as a coroner or a medical assistant. This example leads nicely to the levels of necrophilia, which has been established in research to identify the different ways people may put this into action. The first level of necrophilia is called the simulator. First level of necrophilia is an individual who only fantasizes about having sex with a corpse. These individuals may pay sex workers or have their sexual partners act dead in order to feel like they are having sex with a corpse. For example, they may have their significant other take a cold bath before they engage in sexual activity. The intent is there to sort of simulate the necrophilia, but not actually engage in it with a body. The second level of necrophilia is the person who has sex with somebody who is already dead, but they do not engage in murdering that person. Karen Greenlee would be an example of this. She worked as an embalmer and essentially stole a body in a hearse to have sexual activity with it and it was later found out through a letter that she wrote and extensive information that she gave that that had actually happened with a number of other bodies. Final level of necrophilia, which is the one I started with talking about, is the necro-sadistic offender. These are the individuals that actually commit murder to have sex with a corpse. Examples of that are those individuals I provided at the beginning of this section. And we're going to discuss this a bit more when we talk about sexually motivated homicide, because that is a motivation that comes up in several of these cases. I know that those definitions can be really difficult to talk about. Moving from those to the criticisms of when we're talking about paraphilic disorders is that we need to recognize that current definitions of paraphilias are really more driven from historical, cultural, social, and religious factors than any sort of medical and scientific evidence. If we look to history, and that's why I started with it, most non-intercourse activities have been considered deviant at some point in time. There's also a lack of validity for many of these diagnoses. Engaging in these behaviors does not represent an underlying mental health disorder. Individuals may have mental health disorders, but engaging in atypical sexual interests is not necessarily representative of a problem. So it can be really difficult to assess 
what it means in terms of intensity of interest or whether it's greater or equal than typical interests. And those are things that are required for the DSM definition. But that sort of requires a definition of normal sexuality, which obviously we don't have. Sexuality is something that is individual to a person in terms of identity, expression, engagement. Putting it into these boxes of labels can be really difficult, and we've seen it cause problems in the past. In the DSM-5, we saw a shift in language with the DSM criteria, and this was seen as a victory for kink-oriented folks because previously to the DSM-5, just having a paraphilic interest was equated with having a mental illness. And the change that we saw in the DSM-5 was that they introduced the idea of a paraphilic interest versus a paraphilic disorder. And this is important because there are serious repercussions for individuals simply because of their sexual lives, including in things such as custody battles. We've seen that since the change of the DSM criteria, there has been a reduction in the removal of children associated with paraphilic interest cases and fewer cases related to discrimination related to paraphilic interests. These are things that have real change for families because families were having their children removed simply because people in their neighborhoods found out they engaged in BDSM activities or they engaged in some atypical sexual activity, which of course is just irresponsible. Engaging in any sort of sexual activity, given it's safe, sane, and consensual, should not be indicative of parenting ability. In terms of recognizing that difference between paraphilic disorders and interests, the DSM changed the criteria so someone can have an interest only as long as they're not suffering from distress or causing harm to non-consenting people. If we think back to that Fifty Shades of Grey series, they're engaged in what is called deviant sexuality or paraphilic interest, but they would not be labeled with having a paraphilic disorder. And this is really important to remember because individuals can have atypical sexual interests, have paraphilic interests without it being a disorder, even if it's something that you don't necessarily like. And I bring up the idea of like because we have this sort of saying within sex therapy and relationship therapy of the idea of yucks and yums. The idea that, you know, some people have things that they like, the yums, and some people have things that they don't like, the yucks. And everybody's differs. Some people are going to love giving a blowjob. Some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to love having anal sex. Some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to love getting choked. Some people are going to hate it. Some people are going to love getting spit on. Some people are going to hate it, right? I can go on and on and on, and I can get much more graphic in much more detail, and there are much more, you know, alternative activities that people engage in. None of that should weigh into them as a human being unless it's something that is causing harm to themselves or others. And that's where this idea of separating the interests out from the behaviors comes in. The DSM-5 continues to have confusion around it because a lot of the writing about it tends to focus on criminal behavior as diagnostic criterion or that it's linked to paraphilic behaviors, which we really don't see through the empirical evidence. Using these diagnostic labels, it's really, really important to understand the difference that exists between individuals who simply have sexual attractions to things and individuals who are impaired by it or causing harm to other people. 
next episode, I'm going to get a lot more into detail about that and what it means to have paraphilic disorders in non-clinical samples and what it means to have paraphilic disorders in individuals who don't commit crimes, because we often only talk about these things in the context of crime, but these behaviors are very, very common outside of crime. And understanding that can help people understand the complexity that comes with sexual crimes and and that it's not as simple as someone just has a paraphilic disorder and that's what caused them to engage in these things. There's often many, many more factors and contextual factors at play. Thank you for those who have been tuning in for the first couple episodes. I see the numbers growing, which is great. I'm trying to work on being louder on the podcast because I tend to have a very, very quiet voice in real life too. So I'm trying to work on projecting that to make it a little bit easier to hear and not have to have max volume. If you have any feedback or suggestions in terms of cases, I would love to hear from you. Otherwise, I will be back next week with another episode looking at paraphilic interests and what my research has said about feasibility in terms of acting on it and how that plays into it. Thanks again. If the information in this podcast has been distressing, please see the homepage for resources.